Well, now we get to get into God's Word this morning, and so it just gets better and better. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through the end of the chapter to actually verse chapter 9, verse 1. If you need a Bible, Stephen's up front. He's got Bibles in his hands, and he's ready to pass one out to you so you can follow along with us. What's that? Okay. All right, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18, we read, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So then the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go! So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. The title of my message this morning is, Jesus' power revealed... Hashtag when pigs fly. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for just the the sweet fellowship that we've had together, the sweet people that are here, Lord, and what a blessing they've been to me and my family. But Lord, now our, our time is to focus on your word this morning, what you had to say to us, and we thank you for this time. We pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us today. Lord, if by... Uh, by your plan, someone is here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Their, their, their sin has not been forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today that they would come to know you and love you as so many of us do this morning. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My mother-in-law sent this to me uh, yesterday. And I thought it was pretty funny. Sad news from Minnesota. Please join me in remembering... A great icon of the entertainment community, the Pillsbury Doughboy, died yesterday of a yeast infection <laughs> and trauma complications from repeatedly poked in the belly. He was 71. Doughboy was buried in a lightly greased coffin. Dozens of celebrities turned out to pay their respects, including Mrs. Butterworth, Hungry Jack, 
the California Raisins, Betty Crocker, the Hostess Twinkies, and Captain Crunch. The gravesite was piled high with flowers. <laughs> Aunt Jemima delivered the eulogy and lovingly described Doughboy as a man who never knew how much he was needed. Born and bred in Minnesota, Doughboy rose quickly in show business, but his later life was filled with turnovers. He was not considered a very smart cookie, wasting much of his dough on half-baked schemes. Despite being a little flaky at times, he was still a crusty old man and was considered a positive role model for millions. Doughboy is survived by his wife, Play-Doh, three children, John Doe, Jane Doe, and Dosi Doe, plus they had one in the oven. He's also survived by his elderly father, Pop-Tart. The funeral was held at 3.50 for about 20 minutes. I like that. His life was filled with turnovers. Listen, such is life. You just never know what's around the next corner. Well, here in our text, the disciples were being blown away. Jesus had earlier cleansed the leper. He had healed the centurion servant from a distance. He had touched Peter's mother-in-law and delivered her you know, from her fever. He had spent pretty much the whole evening healing those that were oppressed and possessed uh, by demons, casting out demons, healing those that had diseases. In fact, what we have been seeing is Jesus' power revealed. And we'll continue to see it towards the end of all the rest of chapter 8, on into chapter 9, and on into chapter 10. And the point that we've been making is Matthew's gospel is the gospel of the king. And in the first four chapters, Jesus' person was revealed to us. Then in chapters 5 through 7, his principles were recorded there in the Sermon on the Mount. And now in chapters 8 through 10, his power is revealed. And as we come to verse 18, to the end of the chapter, we're going to see that in a very big way. That Jesus has power over nature. That he has power over all demonic forces. Now we read in verse 18 that when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now, the other side is a reference to the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is about 8 miles across, about 13 miles long from north to south, about south, a very large, fresh lake uh, body of water. Now, little did these disciples know what was in store for them when they got to the other side, but Jesus' power being revealed. He wanted to make sure that they, those that were following him knew what they were getting themselves into, that they counted the cost. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, fair-weather followers. Number two, foul-weather followers. Number three, fierce demon pigs. I I couldn't think of anything else, so that's the one I came up with. Number one, fair-weather followers. Look at verse 19. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now you'd think that Jesus would say, All right, that's cool, let's go. That he'd be excited about this man who wants to follow him. But see, Jesus could see into this man's heart. He knows that it's not just enough to raise your hand at an invitation to come forward, to come to Christ or to walk forward at an altar call. You must go forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You must count the cost, be willing to count the cost. 
See, maybe, maybe this guy had been impressed with Jesus, been hanging around Jesus, watching him heal the sick, cast out demons. We're told that this man was a scribe. That means he was uh, an authority on Jewish law, that he was a highly educated uh, in the Jewish culture and society, a man of, of wealth and stature. And he's seeing Jesus' power revealed. He's seeing these, these miracles happen. I mean, he's, he's getting excited over it emotionally charged about what's going on. And he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Just caught up in this emotion. Now, God has given us emotions, and there's nothing wrong with emotions. But following Jesus requires more than just an emotional response. It involves the intellect as well. The Bible tells us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That word repent in the Greek is the word metanoio, and it literally means to change one's mind. And as a result of changing one's mind, you change one's mind about sin, about salvation, about Jesus, about heaven and hell. The result is a change of direction. You find yourself doing a 180 degree turn. You turn around. You go in the opposite direction. Turning your life over to the Lord. So Jesus encounters this man caught up in this emotional response. And so he says to him in verse 20, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically, he's saying, listen, if you think you're going to come and we're going to live in this nice house and, and, and you know, it's going to be you know, all a, a bed of roses, understand, I don't have a house, no property, not even a tent. I mean, do you understand what you're saying when you're saying you want to follow me? Again, it's easy to get caught up in the emotion to make these great promises, the great, these great vows, but it's quite another thing to honor them. No doubt the scribe enjoyed the recognition of his position and the respect that came along with that, but uh, it was an easy and comfortable life. The scribe, you know, thought that, hey, it's all going to be fair weather. He's a fair weather follower. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you follow me, you know, it's not always going to be fair weather. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be ups and there's going to be downs and there's going to be valleys and there's going to be mountaintop experiences. Uh, are you willing to give up all to follow me, all the claim that you have are you willing to give it to me? Now, it appears that the man wasn't truly interested in following Jesus wholly because we don't see a response. We don't see him say, you bet, I'm ready, let's go. We, we, we don't know. In fact, we hear no more about him. But listen, if you truly want to be a 100% follower of Jesus Christ, then you must detach yourself from everything that would entangle you and slow you down and, and really count the cost in following Jesus. Now, some people ask, well, well, is, is it all right to do such and such and still be a Christian? Well, can, I, can I go to R-rated movies? Can I, is it okay to drink alcohol? What about hanging out with my old friends? Listen, the Bible teaches that we are to avoid whatever relationship or friendship or habit or, or pleasure or indulgence that so easily entangles us or hinders our walk with the Lord. We're going to study this on Tuesday evening at the men's study, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, a good guide to go off of when, when faced with te te temptation to ask, well, can I do this as a Christian? Can I do that? Or is this something as, as a Christian is okay is to ask yourself four simple questions if, if you're taking notes. Number one, does this build me up spiritually? Does it build me up spiritually? 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are, are lawful for me, but not all things edify. See, it's not just a matter of, is it permissible? But the bigger question is, does it cause me to grow in my Christian character to be more like Christ? See, as believers, we want to stay as spiritually strong as we possibly can be, avoiding anything that will tear us down or tear us away from the the people of God or anything that would dull our hunger for the Word of God. Number two, does it bring me under its power? Does it bring me under its power? See, you may have the freedom to do a certain thing, but does it bring you under its power? If you can't live without it, then it's bondage. That's not freedom. Again, the Apostle Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul recognized that. Something's going to bring me under the power. I need to stay away from that. Then thirdly, do I have an uneasy conscience about it? Paul writes in Romans 14.23, For whatever is not from faith is sin. Let me read that verse in the New Living Translation. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So if you're about to do this thing, and as you do it, you have this sense that it's displeasing to God, then you should be doing it. It's a built-in warning system that the Holy Spirit, that God has given to us through the Holy Spirit, that we need to make sure that we listen and we respond accordingly. You know, warning, warning, stop, don't go, don't do it. And you say, well, well, yeah, but 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 so and so, they're doing it, and they're a Christian. What's your mom used to say? <laughs> if everybody else jumps off of a cliff, well, you're going to jump off. Listen, you're not everyone else. You're a child of God. And you must obey God. Now, true, some are weaker in certain areas than others so that what may cause a problem for one may not cause uh, the same effect on another. And we need to be aware of that. Then the fourth thing to ask yourself is, could what I am doing cause someone else to stumble? Could what I'm doing cause someone else to stumble? In other words, is it a possibility that what I'm about to do is going to cause someone else to sin? Romans chapter 14, verse 15 tells us, And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. In effect, don't do anything that will cause criticism against yourself, even though you know what you're doing is all right. The bottom line is we don't live and die to ourselves alone. What we do has a direct effect on others, not only in this life, on this earth, but also in eternity as well. See, Jesus has come to this earth to gather followers, but not those that they are going to follow blindly. Not those that are looking just to be fair-weather followers. He wants us to count the cost of following Him and then follow Him with our eyes wide open. When we come to the next fair-weather follower that comes up to Jesus, look at verse 21. We read, Then another of His disciples said to Him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that seems like a legitimate Question, right? Hey, my dad, she's died and, and, and I need to do what's right. I need to do the funeral. Then I'm going to come and follow you. But then Jesus says this. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead in verse 22. And Michael, well, what's the deal with that? I mean, that's awful harsh, Jesus. I mean, the guy's 
dad died. I mean, mean, what's up with that? Well, the truth is, that's not what this guy was saying. See, there was a common cliche, or saying at that time, what he actually was saying was, well, I'm not ready to leave my parents yet. I'm not ready to, to leave home. Wait until my dad gets really old, eventually sick, and then dies. And then after my dad's dead, and after I bury him, then I will come and follow you. Just excuses. No, people do that today. Well, you know what? I, I, yeah, I'm still young. I mean, let, me, let me kind of go out and see what the world's like. And, and then later on, I'm going to follow you. Now, well, maybe later on. If I'll, and, and what it is, you know, the, the years go by. That's why they say the older you are, the less likely you are to submit your life to, to Jesus Christ. See, in this case, such a commitment could involve a long period of time, 30, 40, 50 years or more, if the father was relatively young. This man, he's just kind of playing out time. Perhaps, well, you know, if his dad gets older and dies, then, then Jesus won't be around and, and I can keep doing my own thing. But, but I still, you know, I kind of, you know, I want you to know that I'm, I'm thinking about it, you know, being a follower. Listen, Jesus knows all things. He sees all things. And, and he knew this man's heart and saw there was a problem there. It was a, a weak motivation. He had a divided loyalty. He knew that this man was not really ready to, to give his whole life wholeheartedly to the Lord. And, and so that's why Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. He knew this man was about to settle for some second best experience in his life. Listen, Jesus doesn't want fair weather followers. He desires faith-filled followers. Those that are willing to count the cost in making a commitment to Jesus Christ. And this brings us to verse 23 and our second group and our second point. Foul weather followers. Now, I taught this not too long ago, so I'm not going to you know, go too deep into it, but we'll briefly look at it now. Look at verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, the disciples were following Jesus in complete obedience to his command. If you look back at verse 18, Jesus gave a commandment uh, to depart to the other side. In fact, the New American Standard says he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So he says, guys, you get into the boat, and we're going to go to the other side. It's probably late sunset, you know, early, you know, late afternoon sunset. What happened next? Well, we know that the weather started getting rough. You know, the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage, no, they had no courage. In fact, they were fear-filled foul weather followers. Now understand, though, this storm had to be a whopper of a storm. These guys, they grew up on the seas. They, they, they knew what it was like to, to handle large storms. They were experienced fishermen and quite familiar with the Sea of Galilee and its unpredictable storms. But there was something different about this particular storm. Something like they've never faced before. This was no ordinary storm. You know, insurance, in insurance companies and in business, they blame bad storms on the, on the acts of God. Well, you know, we're, you know we, we don't cover acts of God, you know, they say. But I don't believe that you can blame this storm on God. I believe this storm was demonic because when Jesus speaks the word to hush the wind and the waves, he uses the same words that it, to, to rebuke demons. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
Jesus rebuked it. If this was from God, he wouldn't be rebuking his father. See, I believe that this was another attempt at Satan, by Satan, to destroy Jesus. But it's interesting to know that the storm did not bother Jesus, neither did the devil bother Jesus. The only thing that bothered Jesus was his disciples' fear and lack of faith. He said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. I mean, good question. I mean, they had heard Jesus teaching after teaching. They had witnessed miracle after miracle. That They witnessed his power move in mighty ways. I mean, all of that should have built their faith. They've seen the power of God. And so he says, why are you fearful? Listen, what is the solution to fear? It's faith. Instead of feeding your fears, well, what if, what if we don't make it? What if this doesn't happen? I don't know about it. What, what is that going to happen? Instead of feeding your fear, it's time to feed your faith. How do you feed your faith? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Listen, Jesus was able to rest because he had given them his word. He said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, let's go out into the middle and then we're going to go under. We're going to go down. Listen, no matter what the the devil tried to throw at them, it wasn't going to change the fact that God was going to safely bring them to the other side. Same thing is true in our lives, folks. No one wishes for hard times, but we all face them. No one asks for suffering. No one asks for storms. No one longs to, to, to wade through the deep rivers of hurt and pain and rejection or try to find your way out of a, a dark confusion and doubt. No, if we've lived long enough, we know that trials and, and struggles and storms are just a part of life. And maybe that's why God reminds us over and over again in His Word that these trials are, are part of our journey and it makes us stronger and it, it gives us endurance and it builds our faith. He says, don't be surprised when you go through difficult times. But keep on rejoicing. First Peter chapter four, verse twelve through thirteen tells us, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. It happens to all of us. But rejoice, he says, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy. Listen, no matter what storms may come on our way, what difficulties we find ourselves in, God doesn't renege on his promises. He had spoken the word. Jesus was able to rest because he knew his word was to be true. And listen, folks, Jesus was in the boat. He was with them. No matter what storm you go through in life, Jesus is with us. He's in the boat, the same boat. And may we find rest in the words of Jesus. May we come to that place in our lives that no matter what storms may come, we'll be found resting in God's word and enjoying that peace that that passes understanding. Again, because as we read, Jesus made good on his word. They made it to the other side. And God's going to see us through safely to the other side. And remember, the disciples are not in the storm because they disobeyed the Lord, but because they obeyed Him. He was testing, He was perfecting their faith. And eventually, you know, he, you know they came to Him and He stilled the storm. But there was, this entire experience revealed just to the men how weak their faith was, but how powerful Jesus is. I mean, could you imagine the storm raging and just waves huge and all of a sudden Jesus says, rebukes it, be still. And it's just a sea of glass. That's what happened here. So verse 27 we read, so the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, they haven't seen anything yet. This brings us to our third and final point, fierce demon pigs. (laughs) Look at verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, 
What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is demons speaking through these men. The power of, of Satan was so intertwined with this individual, these individuals, that, that most would not be able to see that there's a hurting man underneath him, deep inside. But Jesus heard their cry. Now the demons make an interesting statement in what, in what he says in verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Listen, demons know that their days are numbered. Satan knows that there's a certain judgment that is coming, and that's why we are told in the book of James that the demons believe and tremble. They tremble. They know their time's short. Now, you may be surprised to, to know that, that demons are neither atheists nor agnostics. They believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, as evidenced by the statement calling Jesus the Son of God. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And even though, even as some liberal theologians don't believe it, these demons know Jesus is coming back again. And in fact, in a very literal sense, that demons and the devil themselves are quite orthodox in their beliefs. Now, I'm not saying they believe as in trusting, clinging to Jesus Christ, but they, they believe because they, the Bible teaches the very opposite. In fact, you know, Satan is in complete rebellion against God and that he hates God and he hates people he hates whoever God loves, and God loves us, and so he hates you and he hates me. But here Satan and his demons realize that they are no match for God. That's why, again, we're told in the book of James, the demons believe and tremble. I like that word tremble. It can be translated shudder. It has this, this picture of like this, this horror, you know, causing the hair on the end to, to stand up. Have you been really, really scared, you know, as they say, when the hair in the back of your neck stands up? That's how these demons are when they see Jesus I like that. I mean, these men, they're wreaking havoc and they can't even come into this town without them, you know, wreaking havoc on the people coming in and striking fear in this community. And, 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 and if anyone came close, it was just, just horrible. Jesus walks up and suddenly the, the tables are turned. Oh, snap, it's Jesus. And they're freaked out. Why? Because they know how powerful Jesus is. So what's my point? Number one, demons are no match for our Savior. But number two, you can acknowledge something is true without believing in it. That's the reason James in the book of James brought up that point, to show us that you can be quite orthodox in your belief. The demons believe and tremble. You can believe that the Bible is God's word, that Jesus is God's son, and yet not have it affect the way that you live. That's why James goes on to say, faith without works is dead. In other words, you say you have faith, and then show me your faith by the way that you live. Not just enough to believe. The demons believe and shudder and tremble, but obviously they're not following him. But again, the, the devil knows his days are numbered. He knows his time is short, especially in the days that we're living in, and he's going to do whatever he can to cause disruption, to cause you know problems, to, to interrupt our lives, and churches all over, especially in leadership. And you know he, he knows that that the Lord is coming back soon. Now, in Luke's, Luke's account of the story, we read Jesus asking the demons a question. In Luke 8, verse 30, it says, Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Now, what this means, we're not exactly sure. We know that a Roman legion consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. Now, does this mean that, the, that this man was possessed with 6,000 demons? Well, we can't say. But one thing we can say is he was severely possessed. 
Now, how could there be a legion of demons in him? Well, Jesus kind of gives us a clue. We're going to get to it probably in in a month or so. But uh, Matthew chapter 12, in verse 43 through 45, it says this. That when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And then they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Listen, casting out a demon doesn't necessarily require you be a Christian. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not uh, in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to you, I never knew you. See, there were exorcists casting out demons before Christ came on the scene. In fact, when Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of using the power of Satan to cast out demons, he asked them this question in Matthew twelve twenty-seven: If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So we get the idea that, that when this man, you know, first had become a demon-possessed, some exorcist, someone must have cast that demon out. But an exorcist, someone who doesn't know Christ, doesn't know to fill the vacancy left by the demon that, that is exited. So after cruising around for a while, the demon comes back and finds a man unoccupied. Then the poor guy ends up with eight demons, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. Well, if that situation repeats itself, then the eight go out and find seven more. If this guy had demons cast out of him four times, he would end up with a total of 4,096 demons inside of him. A lot of demons in one man. Played around with sin, and now sin was playing around with him. And, and, and this man, along with his demon-possessed buddy, had lost everything. They lost their homes. They lost their families. They lost their sanity. They lost their, their will. They were completely under the power of the devil. You know, folks, that reminds us, don't play around with sin. Don't play around with the things of the devil because he's a lot more powerful than you may think. Now, he's no match for the Lord, but, but we are no match for him. In fact, we're told in Jude chapter, or verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Man, if someone as powerful as Michael the archangel would not engage with the devil, how much more should you and I, uh, mere mortal, keep our distance from him? That's why the Bible says, Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Ephesians 6 tells us, stand strong in the Lord and the power of His might, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. Stand strong in the Lord. Stand strong in His strength. In other words, you don't go out there fighting against, against the devil on your own ability. You know, take on the devil. Come on, devil. You know, you don't do that. You'll be torn apart. You stand in the power of the Lord. I think of the story in the book of Acts about some guys who thought they were exorcists. And, and it's funny, people today think they're, they're called to the ministry of exorcism. Now, I'm a professional exorcist. You know there's no ministry like that in the Bible. Well, Tom, you're wrong. They, they cast out demons. Yeah, but no one was called, you know, to be an exorcist. Well, what's my gift? Exorcism. No, you know. You don't read that in the Bible, you know. Uh, even you know, there, were, there were people that weren't believers. And, and, and listen to the trouble they got themselves into. These so-called exorcists. They were called the sons of Siva. And they found some guy that was demon-possessed. And they walked up to him and they said this, We exercise you in the name of Jesus in whom Paul preaches. And I love this. And, and the demon speaking out of this guy says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And he, you know, 
pounced on him and attacked him to kill him. Now, again, it just goes to show you keep your distance from the devil. Now, if you are a Christian, then you do not have to fear demons taking over your life, period. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The fact of the matter is, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He comes to live as a, in a permanent resident in your life. Our Lord doesn't work out a timeshare kind of situation with an evil spirit. Okay, you get him six months out of the year, I get him the other six. That doesn't work that way. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into your life to dwell in you. And as a Christian, your house is occupied. You know, a new, new sign is hung on the door. New, new ownership. You're under God's protection. Now, as a Christian, can he tempt me? Of course. Can he hassle me? Of course. Can he overcome and overpower me and possess me? Absolutely not. No way, Jose. 1 John 4, 4 tells us, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It says it right there. Jesus says in John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. Absolutely no one. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you have no protection. You say, well, yes, I do. Really, what is it? Well, I put garlic around my neck and it keeps the demons away. It keeps people away, you know, not demons away. I got garlic. Stay away, devil. That doesn't work. I have a gun with silver bullets. That'll do it. No, it doesn't work either. I have a crucifix. No, you've been watching too much TV. <laughs> devil can care less about crucifixes and holy water and silver bullets or anything else. The only power that the devil and his demons fear is the power of Jesus Christ. They tremble. They shudder. They fear. And, and let me say that non-believers, especially this time of year, are extremely vulnerable. You know, this whole, you know, the Halloween stuff, people open the doors to demonic influence, often unintentionally. They think certain things are just a joke. Hey, let's have some fun. You know, let's go, let's get a Ouija board. That's going to be fun to play with. Or let's go to this meeting that this guy says he can speak with the dead. Or it'll be fun. Let's, let's play around with these drugs. It'll be fun. All of these things open up the doors to, to, to demons. That's why we need to stay away from that stuff. The Bible clearly warns us against these things. But many people innocently dabbling these things have come under the power of Satan himself. And, and when that happens, there's nothing that can change that except a touch from the Savior. Again, people try. In Luke's Gospel, we read that there was a man possessed with demons and the, and the people tried to chain him up. I mean, can you imagine taking the chains and they, and they just broke the chains as if they were nothing? And really, the same can be said for our society today. We take criminals, you know, we take them off the street, we chain them up, lock them up, yet crime is still rampant. We have people in law enforcement that are overworked, underpaid, understaffed, risking their lives to lock these bad guys up, and you get these liberal judges that, that give lenient sentences and put them right back out in the streets again. And our, our feeble attempts to rehabilitate people, they're all so often ineffective. And many times when you throw these guys into prison, they get better training on how to be a better criminal rather than being rehabilitated. The only thing that turns people around in our prisons and drug treatment centers or alcohol treatment centers is when Christians go in and they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard a study that was done on the percentage of those that have been rehabilitated, those that have gone in for drug treatment, and they said that 5% of those people are rehabilitated. That means 95% failure rate. 
But then they did a study on a number of Christian organizations like Teen Challenge, and they verified that 70% of all Teen Challenge graduates were living drug-free for seven years after they had left the program. That's a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes the difference. So these demons were controlling these men. These people couldn't control these men. It was a very frightening situation. But the one who has all power and authority could, and the demons know it. Look at verse 20, or rather verse 30. Now, a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Notice that the demons could not even go into a pit without permission from Jesus. But Jesus allows it, verse 32, and he said to them, Go! So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And you know I'm going to share this. This is the first instance in the Bible of deviled ham right there. <laughs> or pigs flying. I mean, it's either one you want. Albeit demon pigs, but... Now, what's the reason for this? Why would Jesus allow this to happen this way? Well, again, the main reason, that what we're talking about in these chapters, is to show us His power. That Jesus has a power over disease, he has power over nature, and he has a power over the devil and over demons. But secondly, I think to show us that this really happened, that this was an actual, real event, a life situation. See, if it had not happened, if the demons didn't go into the pigs, if Jesus said, cast them out, then the people around would go, oh yeah, you know, that's fake. Okay, they really weren't demon possessed. Jesus didn't heal them, and it's all a phony. No way. To show that these, this was real, uh, they, they went into these pigs and these pigs couldn't handle it and went over the side of the cliff. It's a, an amazing, bizarre story, but it did happen. Now, how did the people of this little community react to this? I mean, well, here are these, these two men that were very frightening, fierce, ferocious, ferocious demons, I mean, living in graveyards. Now they're transformed. And you would think that the, the people in the community would go, Yes, rejoice, man, that they want Jesus to come into the town and, 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 and even do more miracles. Now, look what happens. Look at verse 33. Then those who kept them fled, that is, those who kept watch over the pigs. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. In Luke chapter 8, verse 35, speaking of the same story, we read, when the people went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So get a little insight. You know, this man has been transformed. The power of God has worked in this man's life. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And the people are going, that's scary. You think that they would be rejoicing. You think that they would be singing hallelujah. No, uh, no doubt they couldn't believe that these, these were the same guys. Because I tell you, when God changes the life of a, of a person, it's dramatic. It's significant. I mean, you usually can't even tell what kind of person that was, there once was. You know, if, if you look at some of our old driver's license before we came to Christ, I think it'd be pretty scary looking. You're going, oh man. These, these people though, uh, you see that, that God changes people. You know, the old has passed away. All things become new. Everything becomes fresh. That's what God can do. But these people seeing this, they're afraid because they're making some good money off of those pigs and Jesus was bad for business. 
And you may go, well, wait a minute. What were these guys raising pigs in the first place? There aren't pigs on kosher? You bet it was. This was the moonshine business back then. They're making bucks and they were angry that these pigs were now at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Now I'm sure they got the pigs out of the water, cut them up, cured them and everything else, but I think this was an act of judgment on Jesus' part. Jesus comes in and says, Yo, what's going on here? 2,000 swine? You're not supposed to have one. You're keeping watch over these barbecued ribs and the BLTs. and the, No. You're not supposed to be eating this stuff. You're not supposed to have this stuff. See, Jesus wanted them to clean up their act. He got rid of the things that they were not supposed to have in their lives in the first place. And that was 2,000 swine. But the city didn't appreciate it. Jesus, you're ruining our business. You're upsetting our illegal industry. You've wiped out our profit. We need, you to, we need you to leave. Verse 34 says, And behold, the whole city came to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. They begged him, go away. Why is that? Well, for such power like that, what are they going to do in their lives? I mean, if he changed these two men, what would he do for them? In reality, I think it's their guilt that made them beg him to leave. Because in the presence of Jesus Christ, it'll either cause you to run towards him or it's going to cause you to turn away from him. Man, if he's got this kind of power, what does he know about me? What does he see in me? I don't know if I want him around. I mean, they could see in his eyes that he knew everything about them. He could read them as an open book. And if he could cast out demons into pigs, then he seemed to look right through them and see their deepest thoughts. And they were uncomfortable. They were withering in his presence and they were afraid of what he might do. See, he may want to change their lives. They don't want to change. They wanted him to go away. I want to close with this. It's important to know that before there can be a conversion, there must be a conviction of sin. Guilt always comes before repentance because it shows our desperate need. But also remember, the one that, that, that makes us feel the guilt can also remove the guilt. Maybe you've come to church this morning, and it was kind of weird, you know, did this whole birthday thing, and it's maybe, you know, it's kind of weird, but... but Listen, God's got a plan for you and a purpose for you being here and He has power for your life. And maybe you've come in this morning there's some guilt and some shame. But then understanding who Jesus is, you realize, man, He's right. And He can see right through me. And, and, and maybe you felt a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm glad that you did. You know why I say that? Because I'm glad you're uncomfortable. It shows that you still have a conscience and it has some tenderness in it. Because if you're living in a way that, you're, that, that you, you should not be living and you come to church and it makes you feel a little uncomfortable, then it shows me that you still are under the, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the reason you feel this discomfort is because God wants you to see your sin and that it's wrong before Him and He wants you to repent of it and be forgiven so that the discomfort can leave and the guilt can go with it. He wants to deliver you from the, from the chains and the power that Satan has in your life. But if you come here and living in sin and you have no intention of giving your life to Jesus Christ, and you, if you feel absolutely comfortable, then something's not right. <laughs> I must not be doing my job right. That's all I can say. My job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. If you're comfortable in sin, then something's not right. I want you to be ill at ease. I want you to say, man, I've got to do something about this and get right with God. Turn over your life to Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Jesus didn't stay when he wasn't wel- where he wasn't welcomed. But he'll always be there if you decide to open up the door to him. The problem is we don't have assurance of tomorrow. We don't know how long we have. So if you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, then do it today. See, the same Jesus that we read, read about in this story went to a cross, 
died for your sin. He died for my sin. And then he rose again three days later and he wants to come into your life and change you. I don't care what, what, what power has a hold of you. Jesus is stronger and Jesus can set you free. Maybe you're addicted to something. Maybe you're trapped in a lifestyle that you, you've never been able to get free from. Christ can change you today. Maybe you're caught up in some sin, but Christ can still give you purpose, or rather can, 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 can forgive you of that sin. And Christ can give you purpose and meaning in your life. Everyone has sinned. Everyone needs a Savior. And He can come into your life and make those changes in your life today. But you, if you've not done that, you need to do it now. And Jesus has the power to change lives. He has the power to calm the storms. He has the power to deliver you from the attacks of the devil. But He's not looking for fair-weather followers. He's looking for those that will put their faith and trust in Him and His power to work in your life. But you've got to come to Him first. And I want to give you that opportunity. As soon as service is over, elders are going to come forward. They're going to be up front. And if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, come up and talk to us and let us pray with you and give you a Bible and tell you what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your word that shows to us, records for our life some 2,000 years later, the power that you have over nature, the power that you have over the spiritual forces that are, that are in this world today. And Lord, all we need to do is to tap into that power through your Holy Spirit that you've given to us. To rely on you, to trust in you, to cling to you. So Father, I pray right now if there's anyone here that has not surrendered their lives to you. Lord, they're still trying to, to do this life thing on their own. Lord, that they would recognize that they're weak, they can't do this on their own, that they need you, that they need a Savior. And they return from their sin today and they return to you this morning. Give their life to you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ today? You want to be born again? You want Christ living inside of you that you have the power to resist the enemy and have, and have the gift of eternal life? If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning. Anybody at all? God loves you, wants to make those changes in your lives. Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Again, Lord, just thank you, Lord, for us as believers, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. No weapon formed against us can prosper. Lord, we love you so much. Praise you for this time, Lord. I praise you for this, this morning and for the precious love of these saints, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you're glorified in all that we do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.